I promise I'm not going to tell another story about Ringo, my beloved English Springer Spaniel. This time I want to tell you about another Springer that Lisa and I owned back in the 90s and 2000s. His name was Presley and he was the dog that we had when we were having kids and, uh, and they were very young. They were growing up, and, and like all babies, my, my kids each spent a lot of time in high chairs. And let me tell you, they were a bunch of slobs. I mean, they had no hand-eye coordination at all. I don't know what their problem was. They're much better now at not spilling food from the table. But back when they were babies sitting in high chairs, they spilled food everywhere. So, every morning, every afternoon, every evening, for years while our kids were little and were being fed by one of us, our dog Presley learned to park himself underneath the baby's high chair, waiting for every little Cheerio that would fall on the floor and at least a couple of handfuls would fall on the floor every time one of my babies was sitting in the high chair. Or maybe our child, our child would spill a bag of goldfish on the floor. No problem. Presley was on it. He was there to clean it up. It was wonderful. Maybe you've had that experience too. If so, then you can relate to the Canaanite woman's um, analogy found in verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Yes, they do. And it's important to remember, Jesus and this woman are using an analogy, one that those of us who've had small kids and dogs can all relate to. I say this because this passage in today's scripture, verses 21 to 28, it contains what has become known as a hard saying of Jesus. Because many contemporary readers are bothered by Jesus's words about dogs. Is Jesus comparing this woman to a dog? We know, for example, that Jews in the ancient world would sometimes use the word dog as an ethnic slur against Gentiles. Is that what Jesus is doing here? If so, how could Jesus be so rude, so bigoted, so prejudiced. Some, some recent New Testament scholars go so far as to say that this is an example of Jesus's humanity on full display, that Jesus was tired and irritable after a long day's journey, the way any of us would be, and these words just slipped out of his mouth in an unguarded moment. And this woman set him straight, 
Or maybe Jesus didn't yet understand that his messianic mission wasn't simply to Israel, but to all the world. So this woman taught Jesus something that he didn't already know. (laughs) I'm sorry, how do I put this delicately? These interpretations are utter nonsense. Don't believe them for a moment. First of all, how could Jesus have any kind of prejudice against Gentiles? Jesus did not sin. And if he did sin, he is not the world's savior, and we are not saved. Besides, back in Matthew chapter 8, which long precedes the events of today's scripture, he already performed a healing miracle for a Roman centurion, a European army officer. And not only did he heal this man, he gave him a great compliment. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Where's the prejudice against Gentiles? Also, Jesus isn't even using the same word for dog that Jews might have used as an ethnic slur against Gentiles. In the Greek, Jesus is literally saying something like little dog or puppy or more colloquially doggy, um, a dog who lives in the house, a family pet. He's not referring to mangy, mongrel dogs that wandered the street scavenging for food. If you're going to insult someone, that's the kind of dog that you would be referring to, not a beloved family pet. I mean, if you refer to me as a chip off the old black, a chip off the old block, I'm not going to take offense because you're calling me a piece of wood because I understand that you're using a figure of speech. Besides, do we have any indication here that this woman is insulted at all by Jesus's analogy? Of course not. But she does understand the truth of the analogy, and we need to understand the truth of it as well. And to help us understand, we need to look at what was going on earlier in the chapter, including the verses 10 through 20, which we read, and then we can talk about what was going on before that in verses 1 through 9. The chapter begins with the Pharisees asking Jesus this question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? Now, the Pharisees don't mean why don't the disciples wash the dirt off their hands, you know, for, for good hygiene before they eat? No, they mean, why don't they perform this religious hand-washing ritual so that they can be considered pure and holy, just like us? Because if they don't perform this religious hand-washing ritual, then everything they eat is going to be contaminated, and they're going to be made unclean. 
Now, Jesus tells these very religious people that they're wrong to think that by performing this or any other outward ritual, they can be made righteous or holy. Because after all, Jesus says, you've got all this sin in here, in your heart. And he names some of the sins that we find there. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That's where the problem is. And there's no law, either in the Bible or one that these Pharisees have made up for themselves, that can begin to solve the problem that's right here in our hearts. See, the Pharisees' biggest problem was not that they failed to keep God's law. It's that they thought they could keep it. And they thought they were keeping it, at least well enough to be considered righteous before God. Never mind that they had all this ugly, evil sin that they were hiding in their hearts. These Pharisees failed to understand that the ultimate purpose of God's law is to convince us that we can't keep God's law. It's to convince us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's to convince us that we are helpless sinners who need God's mercy and grace if we hope to be saved. The ultimate purpose of the law is to convince us that we need a Savior. But again, this isn't what the Pharisees believed and taught. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men go up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a notoriously sinful person, a tax collector, despised by everyone in the Jewish world. The, the Pharisee prayed like this, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. And you can hear his self-confidence. Because I am this kind of person, and because I do all these good things, unlike all these other sinners, I deserve your mercy, your grace, your favor. When the tax collector prays, by contrast, he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus said that only one of these two men, the one that you'd least expect, the tax collector, went home justified. That is, brought into a right relationship with God. And it was the tax collector because only he admitted that he was a sinner who needed God's grace alone to be saved. This is hard for religious people like us to do. It's hard for us to admit that we are sinners like this. It's hard for us to admit, to admit our utter dependence upon God's grace for salvation. 
One of the wealthiest men in America is um, the investor with Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. He's, uh, he's number three on the list behind Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. Um, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg is just behind him. Several years ago, he made headlines announcing that he was going to give away 80% of his fortune. At the time, his fortune was somewhere in around $40 billion. I think it's about double that now. But at the time, he explained his generosity like this. There's more than one way to go to heaven, but this is a great way. Now, if I were his pastor, I'd tell him that there's not more than one way to get to heaven. And I would tell him that he cannot earn his way there by giving any amount of money. And I pray that Warren Buffett realizes this before he dies. But I'm hardly picking on Buffett. We know from surveys that a majority of Americans say that they are Christians. And um, we also know that a majority of those self-identified Christians, when asked on what basis they believe they will go to heaven, say that it's because of their goodness. They're going to go to heaven because they're good people and because they do good things. By the way, this is why Jesus said elsewhere that the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, before the Pharisees. Because tax collectors and prostitutes already knew they weren't good enough to be saved. They had no illusions about their own righteousness or lack thereof. They already knew they needed a Savior who could be righteous on their behalf because they couldn't do it for themselves. And this brings us back to the Canaanite woman in verses 21 to 28. She has no illusions about who she is before God. She isn't one of God's people, Israel. She's, she's been a pagan, an idolater, a sinner her whole life. She doesn't go to the temple to pray. In fact, she's never even prayed to the God of Israel. So she knows she's not worthy of anything that God can do for her through Christ. She knows that if God's son Jesus is going to perform this miracle for her and heal her daughter, it won't be on the basis of her own righteousness. So when she approaches Jesus, she begins with very promising words. Have mercy on me, O Lord. That's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unlike the Pharisees, she recognized her need for mercy. She recognized that she was helpless before God, that she was unworthy, that she needed grace. But getting back to Jesus' parable about the dog under the table, here's the point. She's not offended by the comparison to a dog because she recognizes the truth of what Jesus is saying in that analogy. By all means, it is not right 
to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I don't deserve whatever soul-saving bread, life-sustaining bread you could ever give me, Lord. All I've done for all of my life is to rebel against you. All I've done is to disobey you. And even when I've managed to do what you want me to do, outwardly at least, I know that I've usually done it from sinful, selfish motives. So, like any dog in any household, you're right. I don't deserve to eat your bread. And here's the thing. If this woman is like an unworthy dog, guess what? So are those Pharisees Jesus talks about in verses 1 through 20. And so are you and me. The truth is, we're all dogs. Isn't it amazing, therefore, what God has done for dogs like us? Because through our faith in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, we are no longer dogs under the table waiting for crumbs to fall. I mean, that would already be more than we deserve. But through faith in Christ, we are transformed from dogs under the table to children with a seat at the table. From dogs content to settle for crumbs that fall from the table to royal family members who have a place at the table and eat a meal fit for a king. Today, tomorrow, and throughout eternity, there will be a place at the table for you and me if we have faith in Christ. Amen? So, from a dog to a child of the king. That's one important way in which we are like the, the Canaanite woman in today's scripture. But, but I want us at Tekoa First United Methodist to be like that woman in another way too. Let's notice something. Even when Jesus doesn't respond to her pleas, uh, this woman keeps on pleading. She keeps on begging. She keeps on asking. Even when the disciples complain about her to Jesus, she keeps on asking. Even when Jesus challenges her, she keeps on asking. Like Jacob wrestling that mysterious man who turned out to be God back in Genesis chapter 32 in the first sermon in this series. This woman is holding on to the Lord for dear life and she won't let go. And she won't take no for an answer. She's very persistent. Now there's probably a good lesson in here about the, about the power of persistent prayer. But that's not exactly what I want to focus on right now. What I want us to focus on is not simply how persistent this woman was, but on what she was praying for. So what is it? What was she so desperate to ask Jesus to do for her and for her daughter? She was asking Jesus to rescue her daughter, 
to set her daughter free from the devil's hold over her, right? Verse 22, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, consider this. In giving us his great commission in chapter 28 to give Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus challenges us to rescue the lost in the same way that this woman rescued her daughter. Do we not realize that we are surrounded by a world of people who, like this woman's daughter, are in need of rescue from the devil. I'm not saying that they're possessed by the devil, but the devil is happy to keep lost people from hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus. And the devil in the Bible says that the devil is going to fight us as individuals, as the church, when we try to rescue the lost. And the devil is going to do everything he can to prevent us from even trying. But this is what we are called to do, to do what this woman does and to seek to rescue the lost. Last week, um, Kevin Watson, who is um, a professor at the Candler School of Theology at Emory, and he is someone um, whom I respect and love greatly, he wrote a blog post in which he urged churches to do whatever they need to do to reopen. It's time, he said. And he didn't mean let's throw caution to the wind. He said that there are probably some areas of the country where reopening right now isn't possible for safety reasons. And he, and he said that reopening might look like what, well, what we're doing here at Tacoa First. You know, we have an outdoor service. We have a small indoor service with safety measures in place. And we continue to offer online services for those um, whose immune systems are compromised and, and for whom coming to church could prove too risky. So for them, by all means, he said, they should stay home. We're, we're, our church is already doing what he suggested in this article, I'm pleased to say. And it was a thoughtful and pastorally sensitive article. But it was also convicting to me. Here's what he said that, um, that struck me the, the hardest. He wrote, Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. You and I know that's true because we're Christians. To live is Christ and to die is what? Gain, the Apostle Paul says. The Bible teaches that the worst thing that can happen to a person is dying without being in a saving relationship with God through Christ. And so I responded to Dr. Watson's tweet, his, his, his tweet to this blog post, by, by saying the following. What if people are spiritually dying apart from a relationship with Christ because churches remain closed? 
Shouldn't many of us Christians, and I'm talking about those of us who are healthy and not immunocompromised, shouldn't many of us Christians take a risk and reopen for the sake of those people who need to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus? And I get it. We don't have a lot of lost people right now who are breaking down the doors of Tekoa First United Methodist in order to hear the gospel. But do you believe that it's always going to be like that, that this is just the kind of church we are and we're not going to be very effective at reaching the lost with the gospel? I don't believe that. I, I, do you believe that the, that the Holy Spirit can't do something powerful in our midst to bring re- revival and renewal to this church and this community? I believe the Holy Spirit can do that. And, and very soon, you'll be hearing about a couple of initiatives to facilitate change in the area of witnessing and evangelism. Um, Pastor April and uh, Pastor Josh and myself are are working on those things right now. You're going to be hearing about those soon. But one thing that all of us can do right now is to pray. And what if we, as a church, earnestly pray to prayer modeled after the prayer of this Canaanite woman. Maybe it would sound something like this. Lord Jesus, I want you to rescue my child, my spouse, my neighbor, my classmate, my coworker, my Facebook friend, my teacher, my professor, this person whom I love, who hasn't yet received your gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would rescue them from the hold that the devil has over them. Because the devil is fighting to keep this person's soul for eternity. But we pray that you would snatch it away from him. Lord, we pray that you would use me in your mission to reach the lost with the gospel. Lord, let me be a witness to the lost and use other people in their lives to be witnesses to them. Rescue them, heal them, save them for eternity by your grace. Father, my heart is breaking at the thought that people I know are living and dying without being in a saving relationship with you and your son Jesus. The thought that they could be separated from you for eternity while knowing, Lord, that I haven't prayed for them like I should and I haven't witnessed to them like I should and I haven't invited them to church like I should. I know I haven't been as faithful to your great commission as you have called me to be. But I repent, and I'm telling you this morning that I'm willing to change, and by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I know I can 
change. So I'm going to be persistent like this Canaanite woman in asking you, in pleading with you, in begging you to save the lost. I won't give up. I won't take no for an answer. I love these people too much to give up. The stakes are too high. So I am going to keep praying and working for their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let that be the prayer of Tekoa First United Methodist Church. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tekoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tekoa First. We have live in-person worship every week and we also have online worship. Please see tekoafirstumc.org for more information.